Chapter 27 One day, saying that he had known Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, he described minutely the governor's house and listed the dishes served at supper. Cardinal de Rohan, believing these were fantasies, turned to the Comte de Saint-Germain's valet, an old man with white hair and an honest expression. My friend, he said to the servant, I find it hard to believe what your master is telling us, granted that he may be a ventriloquist, and even that he can make gold, but that he is two thousand years old and saw Pontius Pilate, that is too much. Were you there? Oh, no, Monsignore, the valet answered ingenuously. I have been in Monsieur le Comte's service only four hundred years. Colin de Plancy, Dictionnaire Infernal, Paris, Millier, 1844, page 434. In the days that followed, Salvador absorbed me completely. I spent little time in the hotel. But as I was leafing through the index of the book on the Rosicrucians, I came across a reference to the Comte de Saint-Germain. Well, well, I said to myself, tout se tient. Voltaire wrote of him, C'est un homme qui ne meurt jamais et qui sait tout. But Frederick the Great wrote back, C'est un conte pour rire. Horace Walpole described him as an Italian or Spaniard or Pole who had made a fortune in Mexico and then fled to Constantinople with his wife's jewels. The most reliable information about him comes from the memoirs of Madame Duosset, La Pompadour's femme de chambre. Some authority, the intolerant Amparo said. He had gone by various names, Surmont in Brussels, well done in Leipzig, the Marquis of Amar or Bedmar or Belmar, Count Soltikoff. In 1745 he was arrested in London, where he excelled as a musician, giving violin and harpsichord recitals in drawing-rooms. Three years later he offered his services as an expert in dying to Louis XV in Paris in exchange for a residence in the Chateau of Chambord. The king sent him on diplomatic missions to Holland, where he got into some sort of trouble and fled to London again. In 1762 he turned up in Russia, then again in Belgium, where he encountered Casanova, who tells us how the Count turned a coin into gold. In 1776 he appeared at the court of Frederick the Great, to whom he proposed various projects having to do with chemistry. Eight years later he died in Schleswig, at the court of the Landgrave of Hesse, where he was putting the finishing touches on a manufactory for paints. Nothing exceptional, the typical career of an eighteenth-century adventurer— not as many loves as Casanova and frauds less theatrical than Cagliostro's. Apart from the odd incident here and there, he enjoyed some credibility with those in authority, to whom he promised the wonders of alchemy, though with an industrial slant. The only unusual feature was the rumor of his immortality, which he undoubtedly instigated himself. In drawing-rooms he would casually mention remote events as if he had been an eyewitness, and he cultivated his legend gracefully, en sourdine. The book also quoted a passage from Giovanni Papini's Gog, describing a nighttime encounter with the Comte de Saint-Germain on the deck of an ocean liner. The Count, oppressed by his millennial past and by the memories crowding his brain, spoke in despairing tones reminiscent of Funes, El Memorioso of Borges, except that Papini's story dates from 1930. "'You must not imagine our lot is deserving of envy,' the Count says to Gog. After a couple of centuries, an incurable ennui takes possession of the wretched immortals. The world is monotonous, men learn nothing, and with every generation they fall into the same errors and nightmares. Events are not repeated, but they resemble one another. Novelties end, surprises, revelations. 
I can confess to you now that only the Red Sea is listening to us. My immortality bores me. Earth holds no more secrets for me, and I have no hope any more in my fellows. Curious character, I remarked. Obviously our friend Allier is playing at impersonating him. A gentleman getting on in years, a bit dotty with money to spend, free time for travel, and an interest in the supernatural. A consistent reactionary with the courage to be decadent, Amparo said. Actually, I prefer him to bourgeois Democrats. Sisterhood is powerful, but let a man kiss your hand and you're ecstatic. That's how you've trained us for centuries. Let us free ourselves gradually. I didn't say I wanted to marry him. That's good. The following week, Allier telephoned me. That evening, he said, we would be allowed to visit a Torero de Candomblé. We wouldn't be admitted to the actual rite, because the Alarixa was suspicious of tourists, but she would welcome us herself and would show us around before it started. He picked us up by car and drove through the favelas beyond the hill. The building where we stopped had a humble look, like a big garage, but on the threshold an old black man met us and purified us with a fumigant. Up ahead was a bare little garden with an immense corbet of palm fronds, on which some tribal delicacies, the comida de santo, were laid out. Inside we found a large hall, the walls covered with paintings, especially ex-votos, and African masks. Allier explained the arrangement of furniture. The benches in the rear were for the uninitiated, the little dais for the instruments, and the chairs for the oga. They are people of some standing, not necessarily believers, but respectful of the cult. Here in Bahia, the great Jorge Amado is an oga in one terrero. He was selected by Yansa, mistress of war and winds. But where do these divinities come from? I asked. It's complicated. First of all, there's a Sudanese branch, dominant here in the north from the early days of slavery. The Condomblé of the Orixash, in other words, the African divinities, come from this branch. In the southern states, you find the influence of the Bantu groups, and this is where all the intermingling starts. The northern cults remain faithful to the original African religions, but in the south, the primitive Makumba develops toward the Umbanda, which is influenced by Catholicism, Cardicism, and European occultism. So, no Templars tonight? That was meant to be a metaphor, but no, no Templars tonight. Syncretism, however, is a very subtle process. Did you notice, outside, near the Comidas de Santo, a little iron statue, a sort of devil with a pitchfork, and with votive offerings at his feet? That's Exu, very powerful in the Umbanda, but not in the Candomblé. Still, the Candomblé also honors him as a kind of degenerate Mercury. In the Umbanda, they are possessed by Exu, but not here. However, he's treated affectionately, but you never can tell. You see that wall over there? He was pointing at the polychrome statues of a naked Indio and an old black slave, seated, dressed in white, and smoking a pipe. They are a caboclo and a preto velo, spirits of the departed. Very important in Umbanda rites. What are they doing here? Receiving homage. They are not used because the Candomblé entertains relations only with the African Orixash, but they are not cast out on that account. What do all these churches have in common, then? Well, during the rite, in all Afro-Brazilian cults, the initiates go into a trance and are possessed by higher beings. In the Candomblé, these beings are the Orixash. In the Umbanda, they are spirits of the departed. 
I forgot my own country and my own race, Amparo said. My God, a bit of Europe and a bit of historical materialism, and I forgot everything, the stories I used to hear from my grandmother. Historical materialism? Arie smiled. Oh, yes, I believe I've heard of it. An apocalyptic cult that came out of the Trier region, am I right? I squeezed Amparo's arm. No pazaran, darling. God, she murmured. Allier watched our brief whispered dialogue in silence. Infinite are the powers of syncretism, my dear. Shall I tell you a political version of this whole story? Legally, the slaves were freed in the nineteenth century, but all the archives of the slave trade were burned in an effort to wipe out the stigmata of slavery. Formerly, slaves were free, but their past was gone. In the absence of any family identity, they tried to reconstruct a collective past. It was their way of opposing what you young people call the establishment. But you just said those European sects were also part of it. My dear, purity is a luxury, and slaves take what they can get. But they have their revenge. By now they have captured more whites than you think. The original African cults possessed the weakness of all religions. They were local, ethnic, short-sighted. But when they met the myths of the conquerors, they reproduced an ancient miracle— breathing new life into the mystery cults that arose around the Mediterranean during the second and third centuries of our era, when Rome in decline was exposed to ferment that had originated in Persia, Egypt, and pre-Judaic Palestine. In the centuries of the late empire, Africa received the influences of all the religions of the Mediterranean and condensed them into a package. Europe was corrupted by Christianity as a state religion, but Africa preserved the treasures of knowledge just as it had preserved and spread them in the days of the Egyptians, passing them on to the Greeks, who wreaked such great havoc with them.